Okay, so if you have found Nehemiah, we're going to look at chapter 1. We're going to read chapter 1, we'll probably focus on just the first few verses, but to get a bit of a picture of what's going on, um, we'll read through the whole of the first chapter. Here we go. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. I questioned them about the Jewish remnants that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, there we have it. We are heading into, aren't we, uh, a new term. I wonder how you feel about that. We're heading into uh, a new season. So this week, we've had to remind ourselves of that thing called a jumper. What is that thing? Uh, We've not needed it for ages. But now, I think more or less in a day, suddenly the seasons went change. And uh, many of you will be heading into uh, a new term, a new class at school, a new teacher, and uh, a new situation, maybe even a completely new school or a new year at university, or a new phase in in work or in life in some way. So a new beginning. And new beginnings can be exciting. They can be full of opportunity and uh, something that we can look forward to. But new beginnings, new seasons can also feel a bit nerve-wracking. We can be uncertain of what exactly lies lies ahead. Well, in this new term, we are going to start looking at a new book for a new series, uh, for, a, for our time of a, of a new beginning. And as we read Nehemiah, what we're going to see is that God's people are desperately in need of a new beginning. They need it badly. Nehemiah is a Jew living far away from home. And in effect, what we have here are his memoirs, his account of, of what happened and what he was involved with. They were desperately in need 
of a new start because God's people were in exile. The big picture went something like this. There was King David, and King David loved God, honoured God, and the nation thrived under his shepherding leadership. On the whole, he was a very good king, and he led the nation into a time of, of expansion, of growth. Those were the glory days, and his son, King Solomon, succeeded him. It was a time of peace, and Solomon built the temple, and again, the nation was doing well under him. Solomon didn't do so well towards the end of his life. And so as he hands over the reins to the next king, actually the kingdom gets divided. There was one kingdom, Israel, God's people, with one king. Ah, but now there's... Ten tribes in the north that were called the kingdom of Israel. And there were two tribes uh, in and around Jerusalem, the kingdom of Judah. And they were sometimes at odds with one another, lacking unity, and it didn't work out well. The northern tribes drifted from God sooner than the, uh, the kingdom of Judah. But the story was familiar. Every now and again, there'd be a good king. But basically... One after another, several kings for generations led both those nations, God's people, into disarray, away from God, and ultimately into judgment. Uh, You might have caught it there as we read what Nehemiah went on to pray. God had said, if you're unfaithful, if you turn away from me, I will scatter you. And that is what has happened. Uh, We can read about it in Chronicles uh, in 2 Chronicles, just a, a few pages before where we are in Nehemiah. 2 Chronicles, uh, chapter 36, towards the end there. Um, and we get this account, describing how um, the Lord, in verse 15, 2 Chronicles 36, verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at the prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king of his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnants who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. I mean, can you imagine that experience? There are a few survivors, but it was utterly devastating. Um, Those who did survive, a small group taken off to a foreign land, to a different city, Babylon. And uh, you might be familiar with the song, By the Rivers of Babylon, We Sat Down and Wept. You can find that in Psalm chapter 137, or the greatest hits of Boney M. Um, I think that's right anyway. But <laughs> I suppose that should be, it shouldn't really get a laugh, should it? Um, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat down and wept as we remembered Zion, as we remembered 
Jerusalem, the city of God, the joy of the whole earth, the dwelling place for his name and for his glory, utterly ransacked. And so imagine you're, you're dragged away from your home. Your country is far behind. Imagine you're living in a foreign land. Your people are dead or scattered. Your nation has in effect died. There's no Israel. There's no Judah. There are a few Jews scattered here and there. You're captive in an alien culture using a different language. All that you have known is unimportant or forgotten by those you now live amongst. You've been through untold drama, untold trauma, and those around you don't seem to care. Your homeland is far away and it's unrecognizable. And there's no way back. Even if you could retrace your steps and return to Jerusalem. Jerusalem really isn't there. It's a shell. It's a ruin. There's nothing. It's devastating. That was the situation for those who were first taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar. And as we read there in 2 Chronicles, then actually that massive empire was taken over by another massive empire, um, the Persian Empire. And now, years, decades later, we're spending time with Nehemiah. Um, And he's in Susa, the winter capital of the kingdom, the empire of Persia. So time has passed. Uh, Nehemiah is in Susa, which is 800 miles away from Jerusalem. Now, as we'll see, his life involved being in a position of some importance, some influence in the nation. He was the cupbearer to the king, no less. And that's more than just being his personal butler. That was a, an important position, uh, being a trusted advisor, very close to the one who's ruling over this massive empire that stretched from kind of uh, Afghanistan and Iran through into the Middle East and up into Turkey and now through Israel and to a bit of Egypt. It was a massive kingdom and Nehemiah is his cupbearer at his right hand side. So, so maybe his life gave him some satisfaction. Maybe his life gave him some sense of purpose. He's, he's fully occupied. He's got a powerful job. Life has some meaning and structure. There's a familiar routine and he's got a position of some privilege. But even he, years and years later, is yearning for home. Probably he's never actually been there. But again, Jerusalem is the city of God. This is the place where God was to be worshipped. This was the place where we could go, they could go up to the temple And sacrifices for sin could be made so that the nation's guilt could be dealt with. And they could be right with God. And they could know his presence. His presence was in the temple. A place of worship. A a place of, of festival and celebration. The people of God joining together. Going up together to Jerusalem. And knowing and enjoying his favor. And where society could be built on solid godly values of justice and compassion. Well, at least that was supposed to be the case. But again, God's people have drifted from that, and now Jerusalem is a shell, and they're far away. Nehemiah lives in Susa, but his heart 
is in Jerusalem. He is living in Susa, but he's living for Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is devastated. His hope is that Jerusalem might one day be completely restored. Back to its former condition, back to its former glory. And there are glimmers of hope. This is a time of new beginnings. Some have already made the journey back to Jerusalem. The Persian Empire was granting people favor. And so there's a few waves of Jewish people heading back to their promised land, heading back to their homeland. And the first wave was led by a guy called Zerubbabel. And the altar in the temple was rebuilt. And Ezra goes as well. And the result is that the temple is now rebuilt. Something is starting. There's this glimmer of hope. Just maybe... Just maybe there's going to be a fully restored city. And under Ezra, it would appear that the walls began to be rebuilt. So this city could be a proper city in which people live. It's all well and good having an altar and having a temple. But if there's no walls, this city is massively insecure. Who on earth is going to want to live there? It's not safe. Nothing would thrive. And so there's this... Glimmer of hope, a new beginning, a season of change. The nation has died and gone into exile, but it's poised to be reborn. And so we don't know what exactly life involved for Nehemiah. Was his faith right on his sleeve? Was he boldly declaring to all in Susa, including the king, where his faith lay, what his hope was in, who his God was. Was he a bit intimidated? Did he keep a bit quiet? Was his life satisfying? Well, we don't know exactly what was going on for him. But what we do know from the opening verses of this chapter is he is desperately eager for news. Desperately eager to find out how are things going in Jerusalem. This is before the day of Twitter. This is before the day of Facebook. This is before the day of global media. Um, he's a, he, he, do, he just simply doesn't know. He might have a few rumors. But now his brother Hanani has come. He's come from Judah with some other men. And so we find Nehemiah. I kind of picture him just grabbing them. Forcing them to come. Tell me everything. Tell me All you know, what is going on back in Jerusalem? How is the city of God? How is the joy of the whole earth? How are things going? How are the walls? And then, it's a new beginning, but there's devastating news. In verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. Now that's, the walls have been down for a long time. But there's been some progress. Progress has halted and then it's been undone. And the walls are down. They've been burned with fire. 
This is not mildly disappointing news. This is not something that Nehemiah could shrug off. This is not just, you know, I wonder, if you met with Nehemiah, how would you try and help him at this point? How would you try and and counsel him? Um, We might be kind of tempted to say, well, okay, I know it's bad, but, but cheer up. Look on the bright side, you've got a great life here. And we could even start spiritualizing it and say, that is a position of, of kind of prestige and so on. So, yeah, I suppose it is a new time. I think you've just got to leave that hope behind. Stop dreaming that dream. Nehemiah, well, God's people have been living the nightmare. It's just interesting that we've heard of so many dreams this morning. They have been living in a, a walking horror story, a nightmare. And Nehemiah and others are daring to dream dreams. They're daring to have hope. There's this glimmer of something new, of a new beginning. And maybe we might just say, just, well, just dial it all down. Forget about that. Don't get your hopes up. Don't dream dreams. It only leads you to disappointment. Look, your hopes have been dashed. So keep calm and just carry on. Don't let it get you down. Stop getting your hopes up. Just look after yourself. Don't take things too seriously. In other words, the solution can appear to be stop dreaming, just cope. And I wonder what your experience of this year is. I remember as we gathered to pray in the early part of this year, a wonderfully helpful prophetic word coming. 2013, a year of favor, unexpectedly, circumstances did not suggest this would be a year of favor. The number 13 people can get um, wary of. No, 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 that's not how it works in God's kingdom. A church has just lost its lead elder of 15 years. The father of the church had passed away suddenly and we found ourselves in that unwelcome place. And then a word came, this will be a year of favor, a new beginning. Perhaps like here, there's those glimmers of hope, those opportunities, there's change. There's a measure of excitement, but then devastating news can come, and we get rocked. And at that point, we've got a decision to make. Do we go the way of that worldly advice? Stop dreaming, just cope. Don't expect things to change now. This is how things are. Put up with your lots. Whatever's going on. Go into coping mode. That is not where the Lord would want to lead his people. And I wonder if you turn with me to uh, the book of Psalms. Psalm 125. No, 126. One of the songs of ascent. Let's just 
look at this for a moment. Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we're filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. This journey back has begun. The captives have begun to return to Zion. Their fortunes are being restored. But this psalm presents us with a mixture. A mixture of joy, a mixture of laughter, of hope. Things are being restored. And also encountering what reality is like. Oh God, would you restore our fortunes? You've restored them. Oh God, would you restore them? Our mouths are filled with laughter, but we're sowing in tears. That we might reap with joy. Sometimes we just can default to doing one or the other. I'm a dreamer. I like to dream dreams. And uh, I just, I'm up in the clouds, and my feet aren't on the earth, and, and so I'm kind of just ignoring bad news. I don't do bad news. I don't recognize things that aren't going well because I kind of just want to dream the dream. And others, I don't dream dreams anymore. I dreamed dreams once. Now what I do is cope because I hit upon devastating news. Something set me back. Something set us back. And oh, oh, let's, let's put it away. City Church, Sheffield. Let's go for village church. Healing. Oh, we've been devastated. Let's just cope. Let's not open ourselves up to disappointment like we did before. We've had to handle devastating news. But in that psalm, we see those who sow in tears will reap with joy. I think there's another psalm that talks about uh, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. If we are going to be the people of God together, looking to see what he wants to restore amongst us, we will have to get used to joy and tears. And we'll have to get used to persevering when there's more tears than there is joy, because we're believing that joy will come. And there might be other setbacks, there might be other discouragements. As we go through this book, it's not plain sailing. Nehemiah is anything but plain sailing. It's a time of new beginnings, but there are discouragements along the way. There are puzzles along the way. What what happens to Nehemiah is remarkable. It says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. He is being completely honest. He's not trying to pretend that everything's okay. He's not trying to evade the facts. He's not trying to live on cloud cuckoo. He's not denying what reality is on the ground in Jerusalem at that point in history. It doesn't look good. But see how he sat down and wept. He mourned. But he fasted and he prayed. 
In other words, how does he respond to this devastating news? He turns to God. And he turns to God in no uncertain terms. And uh, another week we'll look in, in particular at what he says, how he prays, how he responds. But for now, it's kind of sufficient to say he turns to God. And in a nutshell, he's saying, here is reality. Here's what's going on. But this isn't how things should be. This is how things are, but there must be more. There must be more than this. So he's praying through the tears, but Nehemiah is seeking the Lord. And this is where the story begins. This is where the book begins. This is where Nehemiah's adventure begins, which all of the remnant of God's people who have gone back to Jerusalem or heading back to Jerusalem get caught up in. It's not just about Nehemiah. It's about God's people. The story begins by saying things aren't as they should be and I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to seek the Lord about it. As he prays and as he seeks the Lord, a better vision starts to emerge. A better vision develops of the future and something does come to life. But it starts by recognizing things aren't as they should be. That, I think, is often or maybe always the case, with a visionary leader. I'm going to tell you just about a few visionary leaders. I am so thrilled that in a few weeks, a couple of months' time, we are going to have a weekend with Terry and Wendy Virgo. That is going to be brilliant. I am absolutely confident that that is going to be a time that stirs us and blesses us as part of this year of God's favor, please check it out. Please be around because I don't want you to miss out. I'll tell you a little bit about Terry's personal story, his early personal story. And this is a shameless plug, but you can read more in here, um, the Spirit-Filled Church. You can read more in another book called No Well-Worn Paths. He tells his need for a new beginning. When he was a young man um, in the early 60s, he'd got saved, his disciple of Jesus, but he was massively compromised. He would go to church. He would receive and be encouraged by the teaching. But nobody in his workplace knew of his change of faith. No, nobody knew. He, he didn't let on. He couldn't. And so he went to church, but within that four, those four walls, he perhaps related to God. Outside of it, no one would have been aware. And it came to a head um, where he'd been to a Bible study, living in Brighton, wanted to stretch his legs before another meeting took place, and he walked down by the seafront. Check it out in there, page 15, 16. I'll tell you no lie. Um, and he's walking along and he sees two or a number of, of elderly ladies street preaching about Jesus and he wants to shrivel up. He is thoroughly embarrassed by what he witnesses because others who have gathered around are ridiculing them. And what does Terry do? He shrinks back from it. He kind of feels a conviction that he should speak up. He feels God say to him, 
Yeah, in a sense, maybe they shouldn't be doing it because you should be. Um, They're doing what young men aren't prepared to do right now. And they're standing and they're sharing their faith in Jesus. Will you do that? No, I won't. And then he overhears a couple of guys ridiculing and saying, they they should keep their faith to themselves. We don't want to know about this. And he feels God say to him, will you at least acknowledge my name before these two individuals? You don't have to acknowledge it before the whole crowd. And he shrinks back again. And that brings him to a crux. That brings him to the point of going home, getting on his knees and saying, Oh God, there must be more than this. There must be more to the Christian life than this. And then he begins to tell his story of from that point, how he was then later on baptized in the Spirit. He received the Holy Spirit and everything changed. People prayed for him. It's interesting how he describes his his story. He's prayed for. People lay hands on him and pray. Right, Lord God, we pray, let Terry receive the Spirit in the name of Jesus. And they all start giving thanks because this is a matter of faith. If you ask, you will receive. God has promised so we can believe and we can take it by faith. And Terry's like, well, I'm not actually massively feeling a whole deal at this point. I said, well, why don't you just try speaking out in tongues? Pardon? Um, why don't you just try? Give it a go. Um, we've prayed. God is faithful to his promises. You can expect to have received. Why don't you step out? And speaking out in tongues is not the only evidence of having received the power of the Holy Spirit, having received um, baptism in the Holy Spirit, but it's one evidence. And so it's interesting, he says, I, I started to just very awkwardly, uh, try and say a few things. But I had any number of thoughts accusing me in my head. This is ridiculous. You're making it up. That's how it started. So he got, he got prayed for. It wasn't like he got whacked to the floor and spontaneously, Shabbat Hyundai. It's like, he's kind of, by faith, nothing much has happened yet, but I'm believing. And, okay, I'm going to just start. And it sounds ridiculous. The others around him encourage him. And then, I don't know after how long, he describes how, and then suddenly it was a whoosh, and I couldn't stop. And I just kept going, and everything changed from that point. You can read about the the journey of his and Wendy's life from that moment onwards. It's interesting, like I said, he's he's a visionary leader. And partly what he realized, and others were realizing at a similar time, uh, 30, 40 years ago, is this isn't just to be a personal, private experience that's kept tucked away. Instead, he had a vision. It didn't exist very much at the time, but he had a vision for the spirit-filled church. This is no longer personal and private. This was people joining together And in ways that might be difficult for us to imagine right now, unless we ourselves kind of experienced something of that move. But churches that had existed with dry and rigid formality, a kind of spiritual version of keeping up appearances. I don't know if you ever watched that desperately cringeworthy program. Um, Keeping up appearances. Church life was like that, but without the humor, without the comedy. Just people going to a building, 
And I'm, this could be a slight, you know, uh, there might be nuances I'm missing here. Please just get the, the big picture and read Terry's books. Um, dry, formal religion. God's people in relationship, but it's at arm's length. You've just got to look the parts. It's about your behavior. It's about kind of uh, trying to live a Christian life, but the experience is just not very appealing. People start getting baptized in the spirit, and people are no longer keeping each other at arm's length. Worship changes. Church life changes. Relationships grow. Fellowship changes. Mission evangelism changes. Terry's life changes. He gives up his job. He goes and lives by faith, knocking on doors in Brighton and Hove, because he feels God's called him to do that. He, he leaves behind him an influential job, as it happens. Not that necessarily everyone is called to do that. He leaves behind um, job commuting up into London, and he just goes. He knocks on doors, and he shares his faith, because God led him to do that. Later on, he goes to Bible college. Later on, he becomes a pastor of a church, and through the pain sometimes, through the tears, through the uncertainty, through the challenges that come his way, sees a different church established, a spirit-filled church. He's captivated by a vision, and he gives his life to it. Similar story for another visionary leader. Arnold and Mary came here. The church, circa 96, 97, needed a new beginning. If you were here at that time, you will know that's true. The church needed a new start, fresh. Arnold and Mary came, not because it was the most, I think I'm okay in saying this, not because it was the most attractive option. What can fulfill my ministry? No, it's God's call. It's a compelling vision to go and to lead this church onto better foundations, a spirit-filled church on a mission. Restoring the church is what was happening for Nehemiah as well. He was going back. The walls need to be rebuilt. It's interesting as we as we'll go on through the book of Nehemiah, we'll see it was not just a case of the walls needing to be rebuilt, but actually society itself in Jerusalem needing to be rebuilt on godly values again and we live in a society that needs to be rebuilt on godly societies and again uh, godly values again we we will know of visionary leaders it starts by recognizing the problem recognizing how bad things are and so again we've been reminded recently of martin luther king who had what he had a dream that's because many people in america at that time were living in a nightmare um, because civil rights for black Americans were so horrifically absent. But you get a leader who dares to dream. You get a leader who faces up to what things are like, but sets into a different direction through the pain, through the injustice, believing for something better and working towards it. That's the case for Nehemiah too. Mourning, weeping, praying, fasting but still dreaming as a compelling vision growing. And so what we see, what we'll see through this book is that Nehemiah leaves a comfortable, prestigious job. He leaves a position of great honor 
Because as he prays, as he seeks God, this vision grips him. It's not, it wasn't a case for Nehemiah of, I, I need, I've just, I've got a call on my life and I need to go fulfill my call. It's kind of about me doing what I should be doing. It was more than that. It's, this is God's vision. He's revealing some of it to me and I'm compelled. It's gripped me. This will not be a comfortable ride. This will not be an easy street. This will involve ups and downs. I don't even know how the king's going to react. How's this going to come about? I don't know. But he's compelled. And so he chooses, as we'll see, to, to leave behind that life in Susa. And he goes back to a ruined city with a few scrawny survivors. And he says, come on, guys. God's with us. Let's rebuild this wall. And that's what he does. So that's what happens when God gets hold of someone with a vision of how the future could be, of what God's desire is for the future. So we've looked at those visionary leaders. But I hope what we'll see as well as we go through this book is actually this reminds us of the greatest visionary leader. This reminds us of another man later on in the Bible who was prepared to leave behind actually the place of greatest honor. Jesus was at the right hand of the king of the heavens and the earth. All that honor, glory, and satisfaction, I mean, sustaining the whole universe there at the right hand of the Father and receiving heaven's adoration. What happened to God the Son is that he saw something. News came his way. Obviously, he didn't need to be informed by somebody else. He was under no illusion, but devastating news. Because the human race drifted away from God. The human race had turned its back on following him. And he's not prepared. He wasn't prepared to leave us in that plight, in that desperate situation, our own guilt. There was, no, there was no way back for us. There was no way back because of our rebellion. There was no way back into proper, intimate worship of God. There was, there was no way back into getting my guilt dealt with. There was no way out of the pit. There was no way out of the sorry state of sinfulness and rebellion against God. We couldn't do it, as someone was praying earlier on. There was no way we could atone for our own sin. There was no way we could get rid of our own guilt. We were in, the human race was in, a hopeless situation. So what happens? The one at the right hand of the Father says, it's not going to be comfortable. It's not going to be easy. There are going to be any number of challenges. There's going to be opposition along the way. And I'm losing my life to this, but I have to go. I want to go. I have to go. I must go. I'm going. And so he comes at just the right time. He comes as a baby, he grows as a man, and he gives his life in a different way 
he was a cupbearer. Not staying beside the Father, but coming down. Coming down to earth and taking a cup that we deserved to drink. God's people have been sent into exile because of what? Because of the wrath of God. Because over all these generations they drifted away from him, resisted him, and mocked every attempt to win them back. And so the wrath of God had been roused. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, comes to say, I'm going to take that, that which has been rightly provoked, that which has been building up, a holy anger against sin, I will take the consequences. I will take the punishment. All these people need a new beginning. But they'll only get that if I go. They'll only get that if I take the cup so that they can have a different cup. So they can have a cup, so that we can have a cup that overflows with blessing, which overflows with privilege, which overflows with forgiveness, which overflows with love. And so he came. So hopefully we will see Something of Nehemiah's journey, something of his heart. Hopefully we will continue to encounter new beginnings. Hopefully we will see here. There's someone greater than Nehemiah, someone greater than Terry Virgo, someone greater than Martin Lloyd-Jones and Martin Luther King. Didn't mean to say that one. Um, It's actually Jesus. And actually, we find ourselves, we were the ruined city, and God came to us, and he rebuilt us, and he put us on different foundations, and now we know him. The joy of the whole earth, the light of the world, the city of God, the spirit-filled church. Wonderful, and we're caught up to be a part of it. But first of all, by realizing we needed our own new beginning. And um, we're going to worship God in just a moment, but I think in all that's been shared this morning so far, and all these different dreams that have come, there is that sense that this change in the season, this kind of new term moment, heading into a new time, a new beginning, maybe feeling like Terry Virgo. Oh, there just must be more, there must be more than this. I'm trying, I'm kind of doing my best, but I just find that I've got nothing in me. I just need, there's got to be more to the Christian life. There's got to be a power that's not my own, that enables me to be bold in sharing my faith, that enables me to to worship with, with more freedom. I just feel I'm hindered. I feel I'm restricted. I feel oh, I've been set back and disappointed because I've encountered my own devastating news. And I stand at this point and I kind of think, Is it worth dreaming now, or should I just cope? In a moment, and as we worship, I'm going to invite you uh, to come forward. You will briefly be prayed for. And the prayer will go something along the lines of this. Lord God, I pray that my brother or my sister would receive the power of your Holy Spirit. And it might be that that is something you would define as being for the first time. It might be that you're... You know you've received the Spirit in that way before, but you know today you need to go on being filled. You need to go on receiving. And you come forward as we worship to say, not, oh God, will you bless me? Uh, um, 
I'll kind of wait and see what happens. But because you know, ask and you will receive. Do you have a good heavenly father who knows how to give good gifts? Yes, you do. Do you have a God who's in charge of the whole story, even when devastating news comes? Yes, you do. Do you have a God who says it's okay to dream? Now, we need to be those who are going to do that, are going to dream rather than just cope, but who are going to not give in to those discouragements and setbacks. If we're going to do that, we need God in us. We need the Spirit at work to help us. So you'll be briefly prayed for. You may experience something dramatic straight away. Like Terry Virgo, you might not. But believe that you're going to receive what the Holy Spirit then wants to do is to help us to worship Jesus. He's not up there, but there'll be some words on the screen that probably talk about him. And we're going to worship Jesus. And we're going to stand together, whether we come, whether you come forward or not, we're standing together to say, we're going to believe you, Lord. We're going to trust you for the way ahead. Even if there are bumps in the road from this point in time, even if the magic wand doesn't come out and instantly change absolutely everything, we're believing to encounter God this morning. So, we're all going to stand and worship. And why don't you come to the front if you're making that step of faith and you want to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Okay? Let's stand and worship God together.